0: Welcome to the Space Store Podcast, you're listening to our Space Roundup. Every fortnight on the Space Roundup we are joined by space experts and astronomers Nick Howes and Terry Mosley to catch up on the latest and greatest space news from across the universe. The Space Roundup is also available to watch in wonderful Technicolor along with all of season 1 and 2 on the Space Store YouTube channel youtube.com forward slash Space Store Live. Greetings, space fans. As as Latch would normally say, um, he's on a well deserved uh, break uh, this fortnight, this week, uh, which is uh, World Space Week. Uh, hi, Terry.
1: Hi, Nick. Good to see you.
0: Good to see you as well. Um, yeah, so we're celebrating World Space Week uh, with our wonderful friends at the Space Store um, who are still working vigorously behind the scenes trying to solve all sorts of little little glitches caused by Windows 11 and all sorts. So, uh, But we're live again, so we're really happy about that. And if you uh, want to watch us on, either obviously on the live show now or on the YouTube channel, uh, if you visit the Space Store's YouTube stream, you'll be able to find all the information on that and we'll be retweeting this uh, and putting stuff up, out after the show. Uh, but as I said, it's a really special on this week because each year um, in kind of uh, true style, as it were, for the astronomy and and space community, uh, we have World Space Week, don't we, Terry? Do you want to tell everyone about World Space Week?
1: Well, it marks the start of human endeavors in space, Uh, the 4th of October 1957, launch of the first uh, Sputnik, uh, first man-made object into space. And I was very, very young at the time, but I do remember actually seeing, not Sputnik 1 itself, because the little satellite was much too small, but I saw one of the first man-made objects in space, which was the third stage of the rocket that launched it. So that was the first artificial satellite. I remember seeing it passing over in a nice clear sky in Armagh where I lived at the time. Uh, So that would have been sort of two or three days later. So I can almost say I saw Sputnik 1, not quite, but the bit of hardware that got it up into space. So that started my uh, interest in space and astronomy. You You hadn't even been thought of then, Nick.
0: No, no. I was the child of Apollo. Um, So my my birthday coincides with the day that Alan Bean and Pete Conrad were on the moon picking up moon rocks um, in 1969. So, yeah, you've got a bit of a, a leap on me. And it's one thing I do actually regret is not being there to see you know, what happened with Mercury, Gemini and Apollo. And obviously, you know, seeing Sputnik as well, that's, that's quite something I can't even begin to imagine how exciting and terrifying that must have been at the time because you watch a lot of the documentaries and it really threw a spanner in the works of what the United States were doing. And obviously, Absolutely. from a defense perspective and a military perspective, it was it was really quite scary. Yeah. Um, and Sergei Korilov, obviously, the the genius behind all of that, the the great designer, as it were, uh, for the Soviet Union at the time, who was completely anonymous. Nobody knew who, who he was, unlike uh, Werner von Braun from the United States side. He was obviously a very popular television host. He was on the Disney uh, programs with Walt Disney, and he was constantly on television and promoting the space program in the United States and very public space program, whereas the Soviet Union at the time, very secretive, um, but real genius. Testament to that is the fact that his rocket designs are still pretty much in Absolutely. use today. Yeah. Yeah incredible man so it leads us quite nicely into what we're going to touch on a few news stories but what we're going to really focus on well not really focus on but focus on this week is try and encourage people to engage with world space week and one of the key themes of world space week this year is women in space and for many years you know it's kind of been the talk has been the manned space program and manned this man that and it's wrong um Ever since literally the dawn of the space age, there's been female involvement um, growing and growing. I mean, I work at the Harwell Space uh, Cluster in Oxfordshire sometimes uh, via my company, and it's really amazing. You go in there and it's it's pretty much a 50-50 split in terms of the gender balance of, of men and women at the, uh, the Harwell Space Cluster. And there's so many different companies, there's over 200 companies working there now. And I find it really fantastic to see how much, it's all changed really, especially in, in such a, an engineering and scientific focused discipline, which typically, sadly, even to this day, in many areas of scientific endeavor and engineering endeavor, is very much still dominated by men. And I think in the space sector, it's really great to see some very high profile companies like SpaceX, for example, Gwyn Shotwell at SpaceX doing remarkable things, really driving that company forward. Um, and we'll touch on a few other people um, that Terry and I've picked. We were asked to kind of think about who we'd like to kind of see bolstered and remembered, and hopefully people who are listening and watching the show will go off and do a bit of research themselves and find out a bit more about these people. So we'll be touching on that um, in a little while, but we're going to kick off with our, our usual updates. Um, so the first news story is the national space policy, UK's national space policy. Now, this has been years in in the making, as it were. But it was funny just before we came on air, Terry was showing me a book uh, by Sir Patrick Moore, who was a, a good friend to both of us um, before his passing about ten years ago, and. Uh, Many people may or may not know that the UK did have quite an active space program in the late 1960s, early 1970s. and The UK has been heavily involved in space pretty much since the dawn of the space age with various operations with satellites and and development of satellites and instrumentation. Some of the key telescopes, we've talked about the James Webb many times on this show. Key instrument on that, the MIRI um, uh, instrument for imaging, uh, is a UK based instrument and that's shipping into the James Webb. And a lot of what's happened on the Rosetta spacecraft, for example, the European Space Agency and Mars (coughs) Express, Venus Express, Beppe Colombo, one of the principal instruments on that, um, right now is being run out of the University of Leicester. Some good friends again involved in that. Um, So the UK's had a massive involvement in space pretty much since the get go. But in the late 1960s, early 1970s, They kind of extended this into a potential launch program. And the UK is probably the only country on Earth. I can't think of any other Terry, correct me if I'm wrong here, that's literally launched one rocket and then given up on this entire space program. Uh, That was the launching of the Prospero satellite using the Black Arrow rocket from Woomera in Australia. Um, And literally the, the Harold Wilson government at the time Pretty much scrapped the whole thing as soon as that had happened i mean they, they literally wanted to scrap it before it happened but um it, it literally got kind of upended as it were and then people say well the uk really doesn't have a space agency or a space program they do they've had a massive involvement not only in the european space agency a space agency for many many years but uh, like i said a huge involvement with lots and lots of missions nasa missions ESA missions JAX missions um, all over the decades and lots of collaboration obviously we had tim peak um very famously quite uh, in the last few years going up to the International Space Station as the first British European Space Agency astronaut and the first one to do an EVA as well uh which is interesting but we're going to talk about some Terry's going to mention somebody else who again it's a name that people may have forgotten Um, But the first Britain space was a woman. So we're going to be talking about that a little bit later. But the whole national space policy, this is something that was launched last week. So the National Space Strategy, this is the government's long term vision for how this small island, the UK, can establish itself as one of the most attractive and innovative space economies in the world. Now, there's some key advantages in the UK's position in that we're an island, and essentially we've got nothing, um, pretty much, to the west of us, bar the Atlantic and and Ireland, obviously, Terry. Um, but north of, us, yeah, <laughs> north of us, yeah, uh, north of us, we've got the Faroe Islands, we've got Iceland, etc. So. From a launch and range trajectory perspective, as opposed to say a lot of the Central European countries, there's Portugal. You know, have got quite a good you know possibility there in terms of trajectories. Some of the islands in the Atlantic, like the Azores, etc. Again, they've got good possibilities. But the UK really pushing towards this launch perspective uh, for the spaceflight program update. Now, there's some key elements to this. Part of this is also being driven by what's happened with Brexit and the UK obviously coming out of the European Union we removed ourselves from one of the key projects that we were very, very heavily involved in, which is the Galileo Satellite Programme. And uh, The UK now, in terms of its defence, is a key NATO partner and a key partner in particular to the United States. We're looking at how we can defend ourselves because more and more, it's becoming more and more obvious now, especially with the setting up of Space Command in the UK and the Space Force in the United States, that. The future of warfare, um, and it's a horrible thing to even think about, but the future of warfare is going to rely so much on space and space assets. And it won't be probably lasers in space. It won't be the kind of, um, you know, James Bond scenario uh, from Moonraker or anything like that. But it will involve satellites, satellites observing ground. You know assets on the ground trying to determine what they're doing. We've had this literally since the, the invention of the satellite. This ability to either spy on other company, other countries, and nations, or to be able to do things like launch detection. If you watch uh, movies going back to the early '80s, like War Games, for example, which is one of the key films that got most of us into computers and hacking and and various other things like that, it was predicated on this whole you know computers analyzing satellite data and looking at launch trajectories and that's really really important and the growth of cyber attacks you know we've had in the last day and it was potentially just an accident inside the Facebook infrastructure but Facebook Instagram WhatsApp going down completely taking out literally billions of users uh, ability to communicate and and do business in many cases and Whilst that's probably not a cyber attack, there have been some huge scale cyber attacks. And with what's happening with Starlink and potentially what's happening with Amazon and various other nations, Chinese and the Russians, moving towards satellite based infrastructure and satellite based communications and satellite based internet, it's going to be more and more important to make sure that these assets up in space are, are really well protected, def, you know, uh, shored up, defined, um, etc., against all of these attacks, and, and very much more resilient. So this is part of the whole national space strategy. It's you know you've got the launch aspect where we've got uh, multiple bases up in Scotland. So we've got things like Saxoford up in Shetland, which is one of the uh, key potential launch sites now. Big investment there from uh, the U.S. behemoth, as it were, in the defense industry, Lockheed Martin. Um, You've got the Sutherland Spaceport. You've got Flambeda and Wales. What's happening there? Obviously in Cornwall. You've got up in Scotland as well. And there's some funny, interesting little issues associated with that as well, in that the UK's come out of the European Union, but Scotland is now looking to break away from the United Kingdom, uh, potentially with what Nicola Sturgeon is planning, the First Minister in Scotland, and saying that they're going to have a second referendum, et cetera. So it'd be interesting to follow that, what's happening. But at the moment, it's really focused around the growth in the UK space sector. And it is a huge, huge growth area. They're estimating... The, the global space economy is worth hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars, and the UK is aiming to get you know a, a, smooth, a small percentage of that, but a significant percentage, and it's all part of what the government are planning with upscaling and the integration with artificial intelligence and cyber security, all of that. So there's a lot of good in this. There's been some kind of overhyped communication from the government, Galactic Britain and all sorts of nonsense like that, which is just absolutely ridiculous. But it's, it's an interesting idea. And you only have to look at the number of jobs in the space sector. And people say, well, I don't work in space. Well, you may do. You may rely on space. You know, people rely on space for communications and rely on it for their GPS in their cars. There's so many areas that you think you may not rely on space, but you actually do. Um, so if you're interested, um, and some of the team that help us uh, produce this show at space Store, you know, they're very heavily involved in computer science and programming. And that's a key element now in the, the whole of the space sector, being able to program satellites, ground systems, uh, being able to program and test those those kind of uh, systems as well. Um, you know, it's, it's a key thing. So even if you think, well, oh, space may not be, Part of my future. You may be wrong, so um, it's an interesting document to read. Uh, It's a lot less heavy than the initial kind of space policy documentation that came out from the UK government about a month ago, which was 800 pages. Uh, This is a lot more lightweight and a lot more kind of user-friendly. I don't know if you've had a chance to have a look at it, Terry, but there's there's a lot going on there.
1: Yeah, I haven't had time to read it all. I read the titles and the executive summary and so on, Uh, but going back to sort of the, the beginning of what you are talking about the UK was actually the third country after America and Russia to actually get a satellite in space the aerial satellite in 1962 we didn't launch it we got the Americans to do it but nevertheless the third country in the world to actually have a satellite in space so you could say we were off to a good start and then as you said sort of the Wilson government basically scrapped everything they pulled out of the, <laughs> yeah. the program altogether um, an absolute tragedy although a lot was going on then uh, quite apart from the launch program and research and satellite development and uh, working on on, um, various programs that were exploring the solar system and uh, space telescopes and um, X-ray and uh, ultraviolet and so on, uh, accessing areas of the the electromagnetic spectrum that you can't get from Earth. But we don't have until now, we didn't have until now really a proper space launch program. And that's really where the future is. Um, I always have my doubts about Prestwick. I'm not sure exactly what it can be used for, apart from a sort of a a version galactic type launch where you take off. From a that, runway, that, yeah, that's exactly uh, yeah, what they're aiming yeah, for. You can't really mm-hmm. launch uh, either east or west or north or south from Prestwick, uh, but yeah, the, the opportunities are there. They're talking about uh, about sixteen billion pounds worth um, of, of revenue per year from this. Uh, at the moment, and 45,000 people are already employed in the space sector, either directly Absolutely. or indirectly. So the, there's room for an awful lot more there. There's various things that people will be aware of. They've probably heard of the Artemis uh, program, by NASA to get uh, people back on the moon will be involved in that. One of the other things that they've mentioned is space weather, which is going to be a very, very critical issue as we come up to the next solar maximum in the next three, four, or five years, because that can drastically affect uh, all our communications network, international banking, GPS, aircraft flying, you name it, just about anything nowadays has some element of uh, satellite involvement in either messaging or location and so on. So it's good to see them getting involved in that and uh, better late than never. It was interesting as well, touching on that space weather thing. There was a document
0: released by the UK government again in the last few days talking about that and looking at the resilience of space weather. Um, you know, The last major space weather events, as it were, that struck the planet occurred really before the advent of the mass commercialization of space and the satellite infrastructure that's now up there. And these small satellites just really aren't designed to cope with these Carrington and greater scale events, and they talk about it in the document. The eighteen fifty nine and you know, mid eighteen hundreds, you had the Carrington event, which was this colossal solar storm that triggered all sorts of havoc with the early telegram system at the time. And it's it's just amazing to see that you know is now being taken seriously, but still. We're throwing up satellite after satellite after satellite that really don't have the levels of resilience that may be needed here. We've got an audience question here. Percentage roughly of satellites is basically UK owned. It's a very, very small percentage. Um, the UCS database, the Union of Concerned Satellites, is around about 4,000 active satellites now in orbit. So if we're talking about active objects in orbit, obviously the UK runs and maintains some defence satellites, things like Skynet 5, soon to be augmented by Skynet 6 or replaced by Skynet 6. Um, Lots of Earth observation satellites, either run predominantly by the UK or hosted by UK companies or managed. So um, for example, the Harwell um, campus site, they're running a satellite at the moment called IOD GEMS, IOD-1 in-orbit demonstrator, very small satellite designed Earth observation. That's a key element as well. We talk about climate change as one of the key, obviously the, the biggest issue that we've got to address as a planet right now, if one of these large scale weather events, space weather events were to happen, or we had a collision domino effect, this Kessler syndrome that we've talked about many times on the show, we'd lose that capability. We'd lose that earth observation capability because most of, if not all of the earth observation satellites, because of the nature of what they do, typically are located in low earth to me- medium earth orbit. They're not in geostationary orbit. That's you know the crowded area that we really don't want these collisions to start happening. Plus we've got all the defense satellites, et cetera. So, If you have a look on UCS, Union of Concerned Scientists, their database, it'll give you the exact number, but it's, it's a smallish percentage. Largest percentage by a country mile is the United States. And as a single operator, it's SpaceX again, by a country mark. They've got, you know, upwards of 1,700 satellites now uh, up in space, and they're aiming for anywhere between 20 and 30,000, depending on who you believe and which FCC license application you look at. And then China are aiming to put up 13,000 satellites over the coming decades into orbit. Uh, Russians, we don't know what they're doing yet, but they're not going to be sitting idly, twiddling their thumbs, thinking, "Well, isn't that great that America and China have got this?" So it's going to become really congested up there. And the UK wants a piece of this with, you know, things like OneWeb, etc. I've always had my kind of, and Terry I know has, the issues with you know the pollution of the skies, light pollution in the skies and radio astronomy interference in the skies. So um, it's one of those things that We've got to do something, but we've got to be really sensible about it and cautious. And I'm hoping that, you know, what's happening with the whole UK national infrastructure plan with, with respect to space does approach this in a sensible and cautious and sustainable manner. And that's the key thing. It needs to be sustainable. Interestingly, though, that segues nicely into our next story with the Chinese. Terry.
1: Yep. Yeah. <clears throat> We're used to talking about Chinese successes, uh, particularly on the moon and their their um, mission to Mars and so on, uh, landing a, a rover on the far side of the moon. Nobody had even attempted it before they got it right first time. Uh, they have their own space station. And... Um, so far, everything going well on, on that. So we've been saying just how good they have been. There have been some failures, but this latest one is uh, particularly notable. A military satellite, at least, we assume it's a military satellite because everything about it is secret, called Xi Yan 10. And that was launched on a Long March 3B rocket, one of their standard launchers from their launch center in Southwest China. It got into orbit okay. But at the initial orbit, we think it was originally going to be in a, um, a quite a high altitude uh, geosynchronous orbit. Uh, so it got into its initial elliptical orbit uh, where you, you get sort of a very high apogee and a low perigee and then you gradually boost the, the lower point of the orbit up higher and higher and higher until it becomes almost circular. And then you're in what's called geosynchronous. As you rotate around the Earth, you're looking uh, at the same area of sunlit every day. So we're assuming that's what that was. It got up into that initial orbit and then the Chinese say basically that it is not operating properly more than that we really don't know uh, we don't know whether it's a software failure or hardware uh, something to do perhaps with the propulsion system to get it up into that higher orbit uh, nobody really knows at the moment and we don't even know what exactly went wrong the interesting thing is that was their second launch that day the other launch was from a different site up in the northern china uh, but whether They actually had to launch from two different sites, I'm not sure. This one, uh, having launched from Southwest China, would have been heading out southwards over the South China Sea initially. And I assume initially to get into a a highly inclined orbit, I think about 51, 52 degrees, something like that. So uh, really, that's all we know. But it is uh, a bit of a change for us to be talking about a Chinese failure. But uh, as they say, space is not easy. And once you have something up there and something goes wrong with it, there's very little you can do about it. You say that, Terry, but you you think about some of the
0: recent uh, other launch, not so much launch failures, but debris raining down. Yeah. Uh, from obviously from long march an uncontrolled re-entry of a a long march booster stage and then there was an incident i've forgotten the name of the rocket um, some months back where basically it crashed into a house in china so whilst they may be very adept at getting stuff into orbit and working and this is quite a rare one as you said um, they're not so adept at always getting it right when it comes down to you know things dropping out of the sky Uh, I don't think they have the same
1: concern about health and safety as we do. If they get the thing up, they're not too worried about what happens after that. Indeed, going back to the audience question, I've just looked at the UCS database. So there's 4,084 active
0: satellites right now, of which 2,505 of those are operated by the United States, 431 by China, 168 by Russia, which is incredibly low. And it gives you an example, an idea of just how much their star, pardon the uh, the pun, as it were, has really fallen over you know, the last few decades since the collapse in the Soviet Union. You know, there's not a lot up there. Um, And then others is nine hundred and eighty. So the United Kingdom probably in the twenties, thirties without going drilling down into the data a lot more. But um, yeah, it's quite interesting. Of those four thousand and eighty four over three and a half or three thousand three hundred of those are LEO. So low Earth orbit. Um, Typically, you know, these are orbits that can be literally skimming the upper atmosphere. hundred plus kilometers up, uh, up to the 500, 600 kilometer range. Then you've got MEO, medium earth orbit, geostationary orbit, obviously. And then you've got elliptical sun synchronous orbits, which is where the UK is trying to pay, play a big part because launching from Scotland, you're not going to be launching typically into equatorial orbits, which is where, you know, places like Carew, which is the big European Space Agency launch site or Cape Canaveral, etc., or Vandenberg, these can launch quite easily into these elliptical um, yeah, orbits, as it were, uh, typical equatorial orbits. Um, but the UK is aiming more for the polar and sun-synchronous orbits. The advantage in those is with sun-synchronous, you can keep the satellite permanently in sunlight and just let the Earth's rotation go beneath you. So the gr- it's great for things like Earth observation, if you're looking at climate monitoring, uh, land mass monitoring, that type of thing, or defence applications, of course. And then you've got polar orbits, which again, you are just letting the Earth go underneath you. But your power regime is slightly different in terms of you're not always in. Sun sunlight. So um, really interesting though, China at the moment, as I said, 431, the United States with 2,505. How that's going to change over the coming years, who, who knows? It really is a kind
1: of watch this space. Which, that just actually takes me back, Nick, just briefly. You're yeah. mentioning the Kourou launch site there. If Britain had kept on with its space program, of course, it could have had a launch site in the country adjoining British Guyana rather than French Guyana, which would be almost a identically suitable for uh, equatorial orbit launches. But of course, they they didn't do that at all. They just opted out out altogether. But in fact, the UK at that time with its various colonial uh, possessions could have had a number of choices of uh, sites from which to launch um, equatorial or low inclination orbits. But as we said earlier, that just didn't happen.
0: Absolutely, and there's a there's been a good argument over like the past year or so, um, especially in like other online discussions that I've been having with various people um, of using or utilising countries like Tanzania and Kenya, for example, as perfectly good launch sites and mm-hmm. the infrastructure. You know, whilst the infrastructure may not be as good as it could be or as good as it is in say more developed Western nations, um, it's still possible. So. I think there's a lot once once I think the space economy really starts to pick up, if it hopefully does pick up and we don't have this catastrophic Caster scenario happening and we, you know, we do return to the moon and, you know, we'll go on, and on to the moon in a second. You only have to remember, Terry, and you will remember this very clearly, just how excited the whole planet were with the Apollo program. Absolutely. And, you know, with the first landing in particular. Um, and you know, hopefully that level of interest in space and space like, you know, I saw it when the shuttle first launched with STS-1 with John Young and Bob Crippen in, in like the early 1980s and, and seeing how people got excited about space again. But then it kind of waned and much as it did with Apollo, you know, by Apollo 12, Apollo 13. Apollo 13, obviously people got interested again because something nearly went very, very wrong. But it's, it was a real tragedy that that momentum that was gained during the Apollo era, wasn't continued and you know we go back to the Nixon government and you know, the Wilson government etc and this whole you know <laughs> reticence to follow on with space as it were although we did have Skylab and you know various other programs and we haven't stopped doing space it's just people think of space as astronauts and moonwalkers and all of that type of thing and it's not there's so much more to it but it brings us nicely onto the moon <laughs> our third topic. So this is one of my favorite stories of late. Um, I collect meteorites. I'm really into passionately into meteorites and you know, run a meteorite company and various other things. And it's it's fabulous. You're able to touch a lot of astronomy and space science. It's all by proxy. You know, as Terry knows, you're looking at the sky, you're looking at something that's happened at best a second and a half ago, if you're looking at the moon or at worst, you know, millions and billions of years ago, if you've got a big, good sized telescope and you're looking out into deep space and you're looking at galaxies or nebula or whatever, you know, you could be looking back, you know, some of the quasars, you could be looking back billions of years before you know anything existed on this planet that was literally alive pretty much. Um, and it's it's amazing to think that but it is always by proxy apart from meteorites which is the the great gift that we get from the skies, where hundreds of tons of this stuff lands on us each year, sometimes catastrophically, like what we saw with Chelyabinsk a few years ago in Russia, uh, northern Siberia, where a large meteorite about 17 meters across exploded high, Earth atmos- you know, high in the Earth's atmosphere, shattered lots of windows, injured lots of people. Obviously, the dinosaurs had a pretty bad time 66 million years ago complete wipe out of you know 70 80 percent of all species on earth uh, we've had mass extinction events all the time but the scientists are talking now about a potential mass extinction event that's happening right now due to climate change but anyway so moon rocks the thing about meteorites is I own pieces of the moon, but they are meteorites that have been blasted off the surface of the moon. So typically, a an object will hit the moon. It could be an asteroid or whatever. will strike the moon at high velocity. That will basically blast off material from the lunar surface, which will then kind of drift around in space. And some of it eventually comes and lands on the Earth. And there's been big falls in Oman and northwest Africa and various other locations all over. And you also get Martian meteorites occasionally. Um, these are very, very rare in both instances, the lunar rocks and the Martian ones. How do we know they're from the moon and from Mars? With the moon ones, we can cross reference against the Apollo samples. So between Apollo 11 through to Apollo 17, hundreds of kilograms, 400 plus kilograms of moon rock were brought back for analysis and scientific research, which is still ongoing to this day. And the Mars ones, how do we know they've come from Mars? Well, you've got the Vikings, you've got various other spacecraft that have landed on Mars since 1976 and given us very detailed spectroscopy. And very soon, hopefully we're going to have an actual sample return mission. So and then you've got things like Vesta, which is one of the big asteroids. And we now know that some of the meteorites that exist on Earth come from Vesta and various other um, well-known asteroids. So it's it's very interesting as a hobby. However, after Apollo 11, because it was for all humankind or for all mankind, as I said at the time, but I like to prefer to say humankind now, given it's World Space Week. And we are talking about you know the great women who have been a part of the space program and, and science in general. Um, after Apollo 11 and through to Apollo 17, the United States government deigned to give moon rocks to every nation on Earth as a gesture of goodwill, as a kind of a peace gesture. Now. Lots of these rocks were given out to not only countries around the world, but also to the individual states in the United States. And it is it's quite amazing that of the 270 Apollo 11 through Apollo 17 moon rocks that were given out, 180 are currently missing. Um, they've gone walkies now. People have got light fingers, <laughs> clearly, um, and these things just disappear um, if they're given to governments. And you've got obviously rogue nation states all around the world. I won't name names, but there's, you know, countries that, you know, have been involved in really serious wars. I will name a few names like the Afghanistans and the Libyans, et cetera, this world and, and various other countries around the world where these may have been given to a leader of that nation at the time. And then the leaders just decided rather than you know, allow it to be displayed in a national museum or kept in a safe place. He's just pocketed it or it's been given to somebody or it's got lost or it's been stolen. Now, from time to time, there's people like Robert Perlman. If you don't know Robert Perlman, Robert Perlman is one of the most phenomenal space historians out there. He runs a website called Collect Space. Um, He is a huge space collector, really into the memorabilia side. Fantastic guy. He was a consultant on several big space documentaries. You know, he's, he's worked on so much stuff. But one of his other passions is hunting down and helping to hunt down these missing moon rocks now occasionally i got involved in this a few years ago as well where occasionally you'll see some auctions come up um, and we're always monitoring the auction sites for interesting memorabilia but some of these auction sites will come up and they'll say oh this is a moon rock from apollo whatever and you think well they're illegal it is a federal offense to own one of these Um, it doesn't matter who you are it is a federal offense unless it's been gifted to you or your nation by the United States government as part of this Goodwill program, it is a federal offence to own a moon rock. You can own very small pieces of moon rock and lunar dust um, if it's still attached to the artifact. So I've got a piece of moon rock from Apollo 16, which is still connected. It's a very, very tiny piece. uh, There's lots of little fragments, actually, connected to some of the netting from the spacecraft itself that was inside the spacecraft. And some of the dust from Charlie Duke's personal collection, because it's now allowed or it's been permitted after various legal cases for the Apollo astronauts to sell off items in their possession that were part of the moon program. And in Apollo, you know, with Apollo 15, you know, they all got into a lot of trouble in the early days with this with, you know, they took up a, a set of uh, first day covers like stamp cards, as it were, uh, that they were going to sell as an insurance policy. And it kind of all went a bit wrong and they all got kind of taken out of the Apollo program and told they were never going to fly again, etc. And it, it was quite sad. But after Many, many years of arguments, and Jim Lovell, I think, pioneered this. Some of the artifacts then became available, and there's lots of collectors all around the world. So these Apollo moon rocks, as I said, they, they went missing. Now, one of them's turned up um, in the last few weeks, um, found out of goodwill. I like the I like the thing here. So a chap was basically going around a flea market, or a car boot sale some years back, and he was interested in wood. Not not something. Not interested in meteorites, not interested in moon rocks. He was into wood. He was a gun kind of restorer. And one of his things was he liked to get old pieces of wood that would enable him to restore gun stock barrels. So he picked up this plaque. He'd pick up all sorts of different pieces of wood in a flea market. Uh, this chap's based in Louisiana. And uh, I think it was in Florida or Louisiana. And he basically... Um, put it in a kind of garage and forgot about it. And then recently he was looking at ways he could restore one of his guns. Um, So he goes into his garage, pulls out this piece of wood, and then realizes that it's it's a moon rock because he's read the inscription on it. And it's from the Apollo 17 mission. This was the moon rock that was gifted to the state of Louisiana. And I absolutely love this story is that, you know, this chap was literally sitting on something that's, almost priceless. Um, It is literally the Apollo moon samples are some of the most valuable things on Earth. If you could put a monetary value on them, which you technically and legally can't. But there's a very good story that was made into a book called Sex on the Moon, where um, an intern basically got to working at one of the NASA sites that was doing the curation and analysis of the moon rocks. And they had a safe full of these things, and he basically stole the safe, the entire filing cabinet slash safe. Um, In terms of a robbery, it's probably the greatest robbery in, in human history because the value of the moon rocks that he took was in the billions. It was, it was like way bigger than the great train robbery in the 60s in the UK, anything like that. This was billions of pounds worth of moon rock he, he'd stolen. And the reason the book is called Sex on the Moon was that he wanted to impress his girlfriend by basically putting these moon rocks under his bed and performing said act, um, which is just bizarre. It's absolutely bizarre. He got caught, he got arrested, um, loads of FBI, etc. surrounded him with guns, um, so if you're ever ever offered a moon rock um just call the authorities literally it is it is you can be thrown in jail for a long time just for, you know, saying, yes, I want to buy one of these things. And thankfully, there's a huge group of people all around the world who
1: really do keep an eye out for this stuff. I don't know what you think of this story, Terry, but I just yeah. yeah. love it. It's so interesting. You didn't read the, the uh, label on it the first time. Ollie was interested in the wood because it was good quality wood. But just going back to your last point, I have to say this and excuse me. Only he was able to say, did the moon move for you, darling? <laughs> <laughs> now, to something much more serious. The same thing, sort of thing happened with the uh, piece of the moon that was given to Ireland. Yes. As you say, every country got one. I think you know the story. I it was on display well. in Dunsink Observatory, the National Observatory, just on the outskirts of Dublin. They unfortunately had a fire and uh, not all of the building but part of the building was destroyed and of course what you do after a fire is you get in the the people with the shovels and the buckets and the bins and whatever and you scrape up all the all the rubbish and it was taken and dumped in the nearest skip which actually was just across the road um part of what they threw out was The piece of moon rock that was given to Ireland. So, if anybody wants to go and search around in the Dunsink tip, (laughs) you may find a tiny, tiny little bit of the moon there. But uh, I don't know actually how it survived. You can see from the photo there that it's uh, it's actually encased in in some transparent. Yeah, it's in Lucite, yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's only a tiny piece. That one is 1.14 grams, so it's very small, but it is nevertheless a piece of the moon and its provenance is known because we know exactly where those pieces were collected from by Harrison Smith and so on. Yeah. But yes, strange things can happen to pieces of the moon when once they reach the earth.
0: That's the thing. And the Dun Dunsink landfill site, I mean, there's hundreds of thousands of tons of yeah. of waste has been dumped on that since the fire. So you, you'd never find it, and the other no. the other really annoying thing about lunar rocks. Um, anyone who collects meteorites knows that one of the the key ways that you find meteorites if you go into the deserts of North Africa, Tunisia, <laughs> Egypt, etc. It, it's a really good hunting ground, and I've been hunting in various countries around the world in the past. It is a lot of fun um, when you go out with magnet sticks or metal detectors. Now, magnet sticks. The reason is that a lot of meteorites have a quite high iron content, um, especially you know you've got stony stony irons, palisites, et etc the moon and mars rocks have almost no iron content whatsoever in the ones that you have typically fallen to earth so they're not really attracted to magnets you can't even use that and the thing is we've done sinks landfill site which is vast um yeah there's, there's going to be every metallic object there no doubt. Yeah. and if it's encased in loose light the loose light would have melted because the fire was quite fierce There'd, everything around it so don't think you're going to get rich no i'm finding one of these things but on a more serious note, if you ever do come across an auction site or anything where somebody's purporting to to try and sell. I I spotted one actually bizarrely enough in Dublin, Terry, uh, a few years back where somebody right. was advertising a moon rock from Apollo 16. And, you know, Charlie Duke um, amusingly said that, you know, he had some moon rocks fall out on his living room carpet, etc., and various other things if you talk to him. And th- there's all sorts of stories that have been flitting around and some are apocryphal, some are not. Um, but these are literally for the whole of humanity to enjoy. And they are national treasures. The UK's ones is one at Leicester um, Space Centre. There's ones at the uh, Natural History Museum, no, the um, Science Museum, um, Natural History Museum, obviously the creation there do a lot of work in terms of meteorite creation. If you are ever to come across one of these, please contact people like Robert Perlman at Collect Space, etc., And, you know, let them take take over because We don't want these falling into the wrong hands because they're not there to be sold and traded. These were here from humanity's greatest ever technical achievement and endeavor being the Apollo program. So, um, yeah, but I love this story. The guy literally was going to strip the wood down uh, and make a gun stock out of it. So uh, only in America, as they say. So moving on to our our next uh, big thing, and this is World Space Week. So. Well, as Terry said, World Space Week is really there to celebrate the kind of achievements of human spaceflight. And it was for many, many years. And I've got one where I collect a lot of old Apollo stuff. And And I was looking at the the Silver Snoopy, uh, which is an award that astronauts give to people who've made a significant contribution to the spaceflight program. I've got a Silver Snoopy award and various things that was given to somebody else um, as just a collectible item. And on the Silver Snoopy award, it says to the achievements in the manned spaceflight program. And you think, You know, whilst there is a whole debate going on now across the entire world about, you know, if people are becoming too politically correct, for want of a better term, or or woke or whatever, it's not. To my my mind, humanity has always been literally two types of people, good and bad. Um, You know, whatever your ethnicity, skin color, gender, whatever, if you are a good person and you do good work, it should be celebrated and it should be promoted. And for many years, you know, we had the horrific... You know, Mercury 13 kind of debacle, as it were, in the, in the 1960s, where, you know, they were training up 13 women to become astronauts. and. In every case, they were exceeding, matching or exceeding their male counterparts in terms of the medical tests. They were all, these were all extremely qualified pilots in their own right. We've just seen recently one of them, Wally Funk, go up on a Jeff Bezos flight on a suborbital uh, with Blue Origin, which is fantastic. It was a great gesture, I think, by, by Bezos to do this. But there's been so many women, not just from the astronaut side. And we're going we're to touch on a few that Terry and I have picked as kind of personal heroes of ours. Um, just to go through and hopefully it'll let you listening or viewing or whatever look at these people and think wow that's that's an amazing achievement that person I'm, I've not heard of that person or you may have heard of them before. So it's our way of basically doffing our cap and saying thank you to so many incredible female scientists, astronomers, astronauts, etc who all through the entire space program have done so much to be a huge part of this and maybe not got the recognition that they deserved. Sometimes quite recently, you look at the movie Hidden Figures, for example, and we talked about who we were going to choose and we could have picked the entire Hidden Figures, you know, Dorothy Vaughan, uh, Katherine Johnson, et cetera. We could have easily picked them uh, as great examples, but that film was, has done a phenomenal job. It's done like what Apollo 13 did for the Apollo program. The Apollo 13 movie, everybody now knows what really happened with Apollo 13, or what you know what the story is behind that. And I think the movie and the book of Hidden Figures, whilst there was a lot wrong in it and there was a lot of inaccuracies in it, but it did highlight some brilliant people, especially African American women who were working at NASA at the time who went on and did incredible things. And you know Dorothy Vaughan, for me in particular, is a real inspiration. From the computing side. So, we're just going to go through a few and spend like a minute or so just talking about each one. And we want you, as I said, our listeners and the audience, and if you listen to this on YouTube, <coughs> et cetera, to kind of take what we were kind of showing you and go away and find more. And there's some great books, especially for kids. You know, I bought my kids the, the book on 50 Great Women in Science a few years ago. It's kind of like a cartoon drawn book with little stories. And it's, it's really, really wonderful. And it really does kind of encourage girls in particular in science, you know, all through primary school and high school. And I know this personally from having two daughters. Um, they sometimes get put off taking science as a subject because they see it as a male dominated thing and they see it as something that they may not be able to do. And you need to have quite a big, you know, kind of strength of character to overcome that. And I'm hoping that more and more females, girls, etc., will get into science because we need it. You know, some brilliant minds out there, half the planet. We don't want to ignore half the planet. <laughs> it's as simple as that. So this is our kind of little, uh, Doff of the hat, as it were, to uh, what's happening with World Space Week and to really celebrate women. So, going to move on to our first. my I, I idolize this woman. Um, I tried to book her, I tried to get her to so many events that I was a, a speaker at personally, was it, or was involved in the event organization, things like Space Fest in the United States, because um, she is an icon. Uh, Margaret Hamilton. So, Margaret Hamilton, um, basically, she's probably most famous for that photograph where she stood next to a load of debug code for the Apollo guidance computer and the Apollo computer. So Margaret worked on initially the SAGE program for the United States um, defense at the MIT Lincoln Lab. And she was one of the earliest kind of female software engineer, she, she is credited with coining the phrase of software engineering because it wasn't really a discipline at the time. And it was because of her work there and her work with the US Air Force, and she'd worked on various guidance computers, et cetera, for, you know, searching for non-friendly. So don't forget this was in the height of the Cold War. So, you know, big altercations with the Soviet Union and the Koreans, etc. And she was working on lots and lots of software applications. And don't forget at the time, anyone who's into software engineering now, you know, we've got wonderful computers with terabytes of hard drives and gigabytes of memory and super fast uh, IDEs, development interfaces that are really well-structured. And yeah, the syntax is beautiful. You can almost type in, in English in some respects. those days none of that existed. Uh, You had very basic languages, you had, you know, FORTRAN was a brand new thing as, as was seen in Hidden Figures. And Margaret came along in an era that was truly male dominated. You only have to watch like the Apollo 11 documentary, superb documentary that was made a few years ago, to see just how few females were involved in the Apollo space program. There were Poppy Northcott and a few others who have featured quite prominently recently on social media and various documentaries have been made about them, but so few women involved. But Margaret, without Margaret, we wouldn't have got to the moon. Um, She was instrumental in so much of the Apollo space flight program, basically working on uh, key elements of the Apollo guidance computer. So after her work at SAGE, she then went on to the Draper Laboratory. So um, basically Charles Stark Draper, who was one of the people who ran a big computing laboratory at MIT, They won the first contract for Apollo. Um, the computing was recognized to be one of the most complex elements of the Apollo program. So the first contract that was awarded was basically to MIT and the Draper Lab uh, to develop the guidance computer. And they'd worked on guidance computers for aircraft, um, most famously being able to fly all the way across the continental United States without any kind of reference, just using an inertial guidance system, which was in, then put into missiles like the Polaris system. So Margaret's work on the Apollo guidance computer, and don't forget at the time, Computers were not what we had. Now, I've got an example. I, I might pick it up in a, in a moment as well. When Terry goes to his piece. I'll just, I'll just jump up and get it. The Apollo Guidance computer was so innovative at the time. So the main computer itself is about the size of a small table. Um, and it was hand-woven by what they call LOLs, little old ladies. Um, into what's called core core ropes, as it were, which basically were, if you wove a thread in a hole, one of these magnetic cores, it would become a one. If you wove it around, it become a zero, that type of thing. Um, and essentially, that was the binary code that these computers ran on. They had very limited actual read memory and write memory, uh, minuscule. I mean, literally, you could type in one sentence into Microsoft Word now, and it would be the entire memory of the Apollo Guidance computer in that one sentence once you'd save that file. We're talking like seventy plus kilobytes of memory. That's it. So in these days, these programmers were proper programmers, proper hardcore programmers. And Margaret was really instrumental in this, working with Hal Lanning and various other people on the priority scheduling. All the things that we now take off as granted in computing, like task scheduling, virtual machines, et cetera, she was a key part of this. And some of her work, basically, you know, with scheduling and priority override and the computer being able to effectively warn the astronauts that it was doing too much, which is what happened with the 1201 and the 1202 alarms of Apollo 11. Without Margaret's work, we wouldn't have landed on the moon probably with Apollo 11 because it was her work on the computer and other others in her team, it's not just her, don't give her all the credit, but she went on to become one of the leading lights in computer science and she went obviously from Apollo then onto Skylab and I cannot speak more highly of this remarkable lady and a few years ago, President Obama at the time um, gave her the Presidential Medal of Freedom as, as recognition for the insane work that she conducted under probably some of the most difficult conditions imaginable in the 60s where you know initially being given quite menial tasks but then recognized for her brilliance and promoted up and eventually becoming a director of you know the apollo guidance computer one of the apollo guidance computer sections so uh, i don't know what you think about margaret
1: terry but Just Yeah, as you say, yeah, I know, and uh, fortunately now people like that are are getting recognition at the time, uh, as we saw in Hidden Figures, basically, uh, partly because they were black, but also partly because they were women. They just did not get the recognition. It's very belated, but very, very worthwhile. And I actually want to, I think it's very important, certainly from my point of view, to go back and, and look at the history of this. And I want to go back for my first lady, Hypatia who was a Greek but living and working in Alexandria, which effectively was part of Greece then, even though it's now in Egypt. She was at the time regarded as the world's leading philosopher, mathematician and astronomer. And I think that's probably the only time in the history of the world where you could say that in the whole world, as far as we know, Uh, that uh, position if you like has been held by a woman she was a teacher she uh, wrote she did her own research she did uh, updates on other people's work and she really was phenomenal a polymath we would call her now her problem was that she was so brilliant that the men at the time were jealous of her and in particular the archbishop of uh, Alexandria um, was extremely annoyed by her, her independence, her free thinking and uh, he uh, resented, we're not sure exactly what happened but basically a group of monks or some people uh, call them Christian zealots set out and they they basically captured her and killed her in a very horrific way which I'm not going to describe. But that shows you the problem that women have had right from way, way back in the uh, history of, of human thought. Uh, if you Google her, you'll find out a lot more about it, as I say, I'm not, I'm not going to describe what they did. Just shows how, how much sexism there was even there. Yep. But then uh, a lot happened in both China and in the Middle East during what we call the dark ages in Europe. And there were various astronomers there who were female who did various things. Again, I'm not going to do all the detail of that. It wasn't really until the last couple of centuries when the sciences started to develop in Europe that we started seeing women getting their chance. Although under extremely uh, restricted conditions, they weren't allowed to hold various positions, they weren't l- allowed to do some university degrees and so on. But there are names that a lot of people will be familiar with, and some maybe that won't, like Carolyn Herschel, the sister of Sir William, Maria Mitchell, Annie Maunder from uh, here in Northern Ireland, Mary Proctor, Annie Jump Cannon, Henrietta Levitt, who did the, the Sephardt uh, Variability Distance Scale, Cecilia Payne Gaposchkin, uh, an Englishwoman, absolutely brilliant, Brilliant, Married a Russian, hence the, the double barrel name. Her PhD thesis was described by her supervisor as probably, <coughs> excuse me, the most brilliant PhD thesis ever written in astronomy. Uh, again, coming up more recently, uh, time people like Prus- Professor Susan McKenna Lawler, and ones that we know are reasonably active still today, Monica Grady, you'll know her as a great meteorite lady, Uh, Lisa Randall, Vera Rubin, Katrina Jackman, Lucy Green on the Sun, Michelle Doherty. Professor Catherine Haymans, who's just been appointed as the Royal Astronomer for Scotland, and now I'm coming to the one that that I'm going to name. Uh, Perhaps not quite at the very top of the tree, but I'm a great fan of hers. Uh, She's uh, Professor Lane Lorraine Hamlin, a professor in astronomy at UCD, one of the world's leading experts on gamma ray bursts, and she has really broken through the glass ceiling. When I first met her, she was just uh, basically a PhD or postdoc. She went on to become head of the School of Physics in in, uh, UCD, University College Dublin, Dublin, for those that don't know the university. She does a whole lot of things, and I'm only going to go through this very briefly. She directs the MSc Space Science and Technology Programme in the School of Physics there. She uh, uh, has been a guest professor at the University of Leiden, a visiting scholar at the University of Washington. She developed more or less on her own a robotic telescope system called WATCHER out at the Boyden Observatory in South Africa looking for transient events like gamma ray bursts and so on. She's the lead uh, professor for the AirSat-1, which is um, a CubeSat, which will be Ireland's first satellite to be sent into space, hopefully next year. She's on the Space Science Advisory Committee, a member of the Irish Space Independent Group, and she's set up and is director of the UCD Centre for Space Research. So uh, she is an absolutely shining example to me of how a woman who has the talent And I, particularly in Ireland, I think, uh, are getting a chance to break through the so-called gender glass ceiling. She's got to the top. She's still very active. I'm a great fan of hers. And I would recommend her career as an example to any woman that wants to study in the sciences. You can do it and uh, don't let anybody stand in your way. And she certainly hasn't.
0: Fantastic. And you name so many great. I mean, people like Michelle Dotti, as you said, so many great people um that you just named there terry and you know it's it's a never-ending list this is the once you start digging into it and it, there's so many people that we both know either personally like susie ember working you know one of the pis on uh, beppe colombo at the moment it, 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 there's so many you could just we really had to think about this list and who we were going to kind of narrow it down to um so we're going to move on to our next one i'm mindful of the time so we're going to do these quite quickly now but um Again, somebody I know personally and absolutely just adore is probably too strong a word, but she is brilliant. Carolyn Porco I first saw on television uh, when my parents let me stay up to watch the Voyager uh, missions in the kind of mid 80s. so I was watching the Voyagers from the late 70s, obviously the encounter at Jupiter, Saturn, and then Carolyn coming on board in the mid to late 80s with the uh, work that she did on Voyager for the Uranus encounter, and Neptune encounter. And you just knew from watching her on television just what a a brilliant human being she was, but also her, her passion. And she always cites, you know, people that were with her and mentored her, people like Carl Sagan, who I know, she, she absolutely worshipped and idolized Sagan. Um, and then to get from what she was doing on the Voyager program and, you know, the person who worked out what the spokes were and so much about Saturn's rings that we just didn't know coming from her and her team. And then giving her the kind of lead position on the camera imaging team for, for the Cassini spacecraft really catapulted her then, I think, into the public uh, kind of spotlight a lot more. She's been on so many television documentaries now, what a lot of people may not know about Carolyn is that if you've seen the Carl Sagan book made into a film, Contact, with Jodie Foster, so Sagan himself basically, won, when he was you know talking about this and the the production concept of this film, uh, one of the things that he said was if you're going to base your character on anyone, this is to to the Jodie Foster as an actress uh, in the movie, base it on Carolyn Porco, and that was kind of a lot of the inspiration for the character the. The, the lead character in contact was Carolyn, and she's worked on, you know, countless other things as well. Star Trek, the Star Trek reboots, J.J. Abrahams. Carolyn was a consultant on that as well, um, you know, the whole scene where the Star Trek, um, the Enterprise was coming through the cloud decks, as it were. That, again, was her kind of inspiration and think oh, this is what we should do. This is what it's going to kind of look like. Um, So as a public outreach person, public speaker, she's incredible, she's absolutely incredible. She's given some of the finest talks I've ever attended. Um, She gave one at Space Fest a few years ago, Utterly brilliant, um, where she talks about you know her key passion. This we communicate quite a lot about. This is space debris and the looming threat that we've got. You know the impact on astronomy is one thing, but the looming threat from you know space debris is something that Carolyn and I really share a passion of. What what the heck are we going to do? How can we raise awareness about this? So it's not just her brilliance in space science; it's her you know public outreach, her advocacy. You know the TED talks, as I said, just in really, really incredible. Um, I know she gave a talk a few years back in, in Ireland, Terry, and yep. I, I really wanted to try and just fly over to get to that talk. It, she was, you know, She's such a, a powerful presence and such a, an enigmatic presence. Um, and as I said, you go and look up her career. It's it's just like an absolute catalogue of brilliance on some of the most famous and wonderful space science missions in history. As I said, being involved in Voyager, you know, the Voyager team themselves are legendary. But then to move from that onto, you know, Cassini, Huygens, et cetera, it's, yeah, she, in my opinion, and, you know, she. The thing I love most about Carolyn is she speaks her mind. She she doesn't pull any punches. You know She's got a major passion for various things. She's got a major passion as I said, for space debris. She's got a bit of a thing for the Beatles. She's got a bit of a thing for Michael Jackson as well. Um, so sorry, Carolyn, your music taste may not be in, in line with everybody, um, but your scientific output and your outreach work is, is second to none, in my opinion. So uh,
1: next, moving on next, Terry. Yeah, I deliberately didn't. I have a great father, Carolyn. I didn't put her on the list simply because I you. You're going to be talking about her. Yeah, next one is, uh, again, a a great hero of mine. If you don't know about her, uh, really, you should, if you live in in the the UK. Uh, First British astronaut. First, uh, woman up to the International Space, Station, or sorry, to Mir, the Russian Space Station. Uh, if you get the chance, read her autobiography, seize the moment. I've met her a couple of times and she's an absolutely delightful person. She was uh, generally popularly known at the time as the lady from Mars, because she worked for uh, the Mars, Mars Confectionary Company, uh, even though she was only going up into Mir. Uh, this takes us back to the sort of again the early days whenever Britain was sort of tentatively dipping its toes into space. If that isn't a contradiction in terms, raising its head up above the atmosphere perhaps would be better. The British Astronomy Project, astronaut project in 1981, was then renamed the Juno Project. Um, of course, we had no launch capability of ourselves at the time, so it was uh, for an, an astronaut from Britain to be launched by the Russians. There were, I think, thirty. 13,000 applications altogether, narrowed down to two finalists, Major Timothy Mace, who was uh, an experienced uh, pilot, and Dr. Helen Sharman, the lady from Mars. Uh, since they were the last two, and obviously they needed a, a backup in case something went wrong, somebody was ill at the last moment. They both went to Moscow for training for the the launch on the, their trip to uh, to Mir. Uh, I think it was about eighteen months altogether. They were there. Now this is where it becomes a very sad story, although with sort of a happy enough ending at the end. Uh, There was to be sponsorship for this from British industry, a whole lot of different companies were involved, Uh, ITV were to be the major sponsor and they would have uh, exclusive rights for the filming and it's a long sad story and you need to read the accounts of it to get the detail but basically the sponsorship basically fell through. because uh, ITV were expected to be the major sponsor, they had instructed the two finalists, Helen and, and Tim, not to talk to the BBC, at least not to do extensive interviews to them so that ITV would have the exclusivity. When ITV pulled out then, the BBC were a bit muffed and they basically hardly covered the thing at all. In fact, the only British television company to cover the launch at the time of Space Sky B which was then in its infancy uh, in terms of um, one of the, the minor broadcasters. So there's very little live coverage uh, except for that. And uh, in fact, no live coverage except for that, and very little afterwards. Of course, when it was a successful launch, uh, then people were jumping on the bandwagon. But um, the, the funding aspect of it is, is really embarrassing. Basically, the Russians had to fund it themselves, and they did that as a goodwill gesture because they, they wanted still to maintain good relations with the West. So a, a classic example of how to get things wrong, both in terms of funding and in media coverage. Anyway, she was launched and went up and spent eight days in Mir. She was the first Western Western European in space, the first woman to mayor, and uh, although because of the funding problems they had to come back, cut back on some of the experiments that they had planned to do uh, to cheaper ones, they nevertheless did or she did experiments involving um, uh, basically medical and agricultural developments. Since then, um she's sort of been more or less freelance. She's had a number of positions, but she spent most of her career since then doing outreach and science, which is really uh what the whole idea of women in space uh, now is about, we want to reach as many people as possible, particularly children, particularly girls, uh, let them know that there is a career for them in science and particularly in astronomy and space. So uh, she's written a couple of books, as I say, the first one, her autobiography, Seize the Moment is well worth reading. And uh, she she did get us off to a good start in terms of space, but. We didn't follow up on it, it really was a shame. And it was a long, long time before we had another British astronaut, uh, Tim Peake, going up as an official ESA astronaut. Uh, But Helen was the... uh, the, the leader in terms of somebody from the UK going into space and uh, an absolutely lovely lady. I'm sure you know her yourself. Now. Yeah,
0: yeah. I've met Helen and we've been on conferences together and we've spoken together um, uh, for a conference via Imperial College in London a few months ago. And yeah, she is, she's she's wonderful, remarkable, very humble. Um, and that's what, you know, you've got to admire about her because as you said, she was almost kind of forgotten. And then, you know, you say about Tim Peake, but don't forget there's been multiple British astronauts prior to Tim, you know, mm-hmm. Piers, you know, Piers Sellers and various others yeah. who had to renationalise as US citizens and you know, work on the NASA program. Um, and you can look all of them up. There's, there's quite a few Brits have been in space, as it were. But as you said, Tim Peake being the first official UK ESA astronaut, and it was really funny at the time when the press started getting, in, you know, into the whole Tim Peake bandwagon and saying, "Oh, he's going to be the first Brit in space." And you think, "Hold on, Helen Sharman did this decades ago," yeah. so. Tim and Tim will be the first to say he wasn't the first Brit in space. You know, he you know holds a, a great candle I know for, for Helen and Helen I think has had almost like a second coming, a second renaissance of late since Tim Peak in that you know, the recognition that she deserved so much for her work, you know, it was proper science and going up to Mia. And Mia's not, wasn't a pleasant experience. No. You know, if you've ever been in the Mia simulator uh, in France at Toulouse, Canes, it's a horribly small, uh, petrol smelling, you know, kerosene smelling, nasty environment, or was before it obviously went all catastrophically wrong. And, you know, British astronauts on board, you know, there, there was a collision event obviously some years back, which led to the kind of start of its demise. So uh, Helen was taking a great risk in doing this, much more than astronauts going up on these little suborbital hops or going up yeah. into the ISS. And ISS is having its problems at the moment, but Mir was, was a real struggle. So, yeah, Helen, if you ever get a chance to go to any of the space conferences in the UK or listen to Helen speak, genuinely wonderful down to earth, pardon the pun. Uh, really interesting human beings. So definitely worth a listen. Um, moving on to my final one. And as I said, we we had so many options. I mean, I, I was talking about people like Kate Arclus gray for example, who is a phenomenal space outreach person. Uh, she appears a lot on Sky News and does you know great things for space advocacy. Uh, there's lots of people like Libby Jackson at UK Space Agency. There, there's some really, really great people. But what I wanted to do was pick one person who would kind of worked on the ground segment, being Margaret Hamilton and the computing side, to show you that that's an area of space science. Somebody who works in, as, a, as an astronomer and as somebody kind of on the mission side, and that was Carolyn Porco, but then finally an astronaut, like you have done with with Helen Terry. And again, this is somebody I know personally. Um, so a few years, back, about, about 10 years ago now, I worked for the European Space Agency for a, a few years uh, in science communication. And I was invited over as part of that, Kind of succumbent to Fascati, which is the European Space Agency's kind of Earth observation, ESRIN Earth Observation Center, and in Italy, um, they're very, very proud of the Italian astronauts. So Paolo Nespoli, and big shout out to Paolo at the moment. Again, somebody I know and is a wonderful, wonderful man. Um, And he's recently announced that he's you know suffering with cancer. So you know, all our wishes going out to Paolo on this one. But. I was so fortunate to go out um, for a few days and hang out with Katie Coleman from the United States, um, U.S. astronaut, uh, Paolo Nespoli, but Sam as well, Sam Christofretti, and talking to her over dinner and, you know, over drinks and what have you, again, her brilliance just shone and her communication skills, I mean, she's fluent in half a dozen languages, but her ability to communicate ideas and really inspire just struck me immediately. And at the time my daughter was you know in primary school and was coming home saying I want to do science I want to do this and I just said to Sam would you mind writing something for I don't you know I'm not into autograph hunting or anything but would you write something for her that she could take into school and she was wonderful and she wrote this beautiful kind of short piece which my daughter then took into school and it's kind of hanging up in in the school um reception area because it's one of those things it was for all of the kids at a school and she's like that she's an amazing science communicator but also you know, such an accomplished astronaut. She holds the the record for a European astronaut of over 199 days um, for the longest female space flight. Um, up until quite recently, that was the world record for any woman. Peggy Whitson's broken it, and Christina Koch has now broken it from the U.S. side. But um, first Italian woman in space. You can imagine. You know, look at the Ferrari over Tim Peak in the U.K. You know massively, you know, immensely popular, uh, trained, you know, Air Force fighter pilot. Um, her list of skills, again, is just, the event. she was supposed to go on spacewalks, but they had an issue with a spacesuit when they were delivering that up to the space station, so she wasn't able to do it, but she's going back to the ISS early next year as commander. Now, you know, that speaks so much for not only her skill, her capability, you know, her no-nonsense approach, you know, she can Give as good as she gets in in any context and you know if you ever get a chance again to hear her speak either you know online um i know she did a big thing the other day for the space hipsters group on facebook um listen to her or go if you get a chance to meet her in person definitely go along she is an absolute inspiration and you know so passionate about getting girls into space and science etc uh Phenomenal asset to the Italian nation, um, as is Paolo, as are all of the, uh, you know, the astronauts. So many of them you meet. I've met so many over the years and pretty much all of them. They don't have any airs and graces. They don't have any arrogance at all about them. They're just really, really great people. So but Sam Christofretti, you know, I can't speak highly enough again about she's she's wonderful, really wonderful. And on to our last one
1: then Terry. Yep, uh, I know we're running a bit over t- time so I'll go through this very briefly. She's a County Armagh lady, from like myself, County Armagh Northern Ireland, Dame Jocelyn Bell Burnell, somebody who's written, risen to the very top. She has got, uh, as I say, she made a Dame, she's a fellow of the Royal Society, fellow of the Royal Society of Edinburgh, only the second woman to ever be awarded the Copley Medal from the Royal Society and she also also won one of the very few special breakthrough prizes in fundamental physics for a whopping 2.3 million, I'll go on to that a little bit more later. Past president of the Royal Astronomical Society and the Institute of Physics, and I have to say I had the honor of taking her to dinner whenever the National Astronomy meeting was held in Belfast some years ago, and that was a marvelous experience. She's best known for the discovery of pulsars in 1967. And a very contentious issue. She missed out on the Nobel Prize then uh, for that discovery, which went to her thesis supervisor, Anthony Hewish. You can debate that about what her particular role was backwards and forward, but the general consensus is now that she should at least have, have um, shared it with her. Now, this prize, 2.3 million. Uh, I think that's pounds. Yes, because $3 million. Um, much, much more than a Nobel Prize, and it is a a rare um, presentation, a special breakthrough prize, the 2.3 million, and this is remarkable and amazing. She has given it all into a fund that she has personally set up to help female, minority, and refugee students to study physics. You couldn't ask for a better... Uh, gesture to science and to minorities than that, and it's just what you would expect from her. She's a very modest uh, but extremely talented and, and brilliant scientist. There's a local connection. Her father actually designed the uh, planetarium in Armagh, although I don't think she had any particular interest in astronomy at the time. If you read anything that she's written about the difficulties she experienced in even trying to study science while at school, uh, that gives you an idea. She has too many academic positions and awards to mention if you if you Google her, you'll you'll be reading for quite a long time. But she is a remarkable lady, very modest, very sincere, absolutely brilliant, and not in any way uh, resentful of the fact that she didn't win the Nobel Prize at the time, she's very philosophical about it, but she has certainly made up for it since, one of the very best, and I'm a great fan of hers. It's ironic, actually,
0: Terry, because as you probably are aware, Anthony, uh, Tony Hewish, uh, who did win the Nobel Prize, he passed away a few days ago. And obviously, it's very sad, very sad for his family. But um, it kind of struck me, and I I was commenting about it online. I couldn't feel that, you know, when somebody great in the field of astronomy passes on, it's it's heart-wrenching, you know, for the community. And, you know, you look to these people as, as true icons. But, you know, Ryland Hewish... You know it should never have happened and I know Jocelyn I you know I've you know listened to Jocelyn speak many times you know and she is very pragmatic and very you know humble about the whole thing and and kind of says well it is what it is as it were and you know I missed that but that should if there's ever a way for the Nobel committee to make a retrospective change in what they did the 1974 Nobel Prize should be given to her, at least yep. as a third party in this. Yep. Um, there is no doubt at all in that. You know, she she did so much work The Discovery of Pulsars, as you said, her analytical work, et cetera. And, you know, it was the fact that, and this still goes on to this day. And this is, again, one of the great tragedies In especially women in science, you know, the misogyny and the bullying and all the various other aspects that can really impact male and female uh, scientists or any in any career, it's not just science, but you just. You look at this and you think, you're my supervisor. You're the people who are supposed to be supporting me and mentoring me. And you hear so many horror stories from academia of people whose supervisors are really, really unpleasant. And it's, not just, it's not just women, it's men as well. So it's kind of, it's one of those great stories that you almost want it to have the happier ending. And I know she's been awarded literally everything, a damehood, you name it. She's got every award that is possible, you know, to get apart from... one that would carry her name even more into the history books and the Nobel prize for you know for physics is still regarded as the greatest scientific achievement as an award pretty much you know you've got the fields medal for mathematics you've got the Nobel prize for chemistry physics medicine etc i'd love to see the Nobel committee just literally say i know they can't award it posthumously but they don't have to in this case they could turn around say we made a mistake she needs to be given this award now whether or not that can ever happen i don't know whether or not she'd even want it now i don't know but i agree with you so much terry that you know a, a phenomenal human being again yeah. great lady great lady so we have run over uh, <laughs> sorry about that but it's world space <laughs> week it's fun uh, what to look out for uh, Jupiter's still great in the skies keep an eye out for that one uh, Uranus, uh, various other planets as well. Quite good if you've got a decent sized telescope. Uh, we're coming up to the Draconids um, meteor shower coming up soon. We've still got these great ISS passes. Anything else you can think of, Terry?
1: Yeah, the ISS has is just uh, finished a series of passes. Yeah, because we're running so late, i am skip out most of what I was going to say. But At this time of year, if you're up a little bit later in the evening, what I really love is the first sight of the Pleiades coming up, heralding the beautiful, dark, long winter nights. Uh, You get uh, Gemini and Orion coming up after that. Uh, So look out in the northeast for that beautiful star cluster, the Pleiades or the Seven Sisters. And you know then that the glorious skies of winter are not far behind. The other things that I have here in the list we can talk about next time. Absolutely. Well, um,
0: massive thank you to our team um, who are so supportive and they were instrumental in putting this together in terms of, you know, focusing on World Space Week and the great achievements of women. So massive hat tip to Abby and Jamie and everyone else who's, you know, who works behind the scenes and and supports us. Latch, hope you're having a good holiday. Please visit the space stores. I said. We, we say this every time. They are a, a great organization. They do some great outreach. They fantastic virtual reality experiences.
1: And they have the um, nice shirts.
0: Really funky t-shirts that they gave <laughs> us. So uh, not that we're plugging them at all, but they're, they're actually really comfy and good t-shirts. So uh, massive hat tip on that one. Um, just a big thank you again for all their support. We've been running this show now for about a year, just over a year. And we had a nice break in the summer, um, giving us all a bit of time off. and. You know, kind of refocusing now, as Terry said, for these long winter nights where it's going to be tough. We're, we're heading towards a tough winter season. We all know this. You know, there's energy crises, there's all sorts of things. So we hope our little show brings a little bit of smile, a little bit of joy to people. Um, I, I know it does to both Terry and myself. We really enjoy doing this. Um, we love doing STEM and outreach. We're always, you know, doing talks. And you know, Terry, you, how you keep up your schedule, Terry? I don't know. It's it's incredible. Um, <laughs> You know, I watch some of the postings you are doing. there's so much that, you know, if you ever get a chance to go to Ireland, which is, you know, where a lot of my family come from, and uh, it's a beautiful, beautiful place. Uh, please definitely go and try and say hi to Terry and the IFAS and the Irish Astronomical Societies, etc. cetera, because uh, they do great work over there. Um, we'll see you again in two weeks' time, um, when we'll be back uh, with a more kind of regular show, hopefully regular timings, we won't drag on as long. Like I said, to the team behind the schemes, thank you so much. Visit the space store. Any final words, Terry? Watch this space. Watch this space. And it's good (laughs) night from him.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Ciao. Cheers, everybody. Thank you for listening to the Space Store Podcast.
0: You can tune in live to our Space Roundup with Nick and Terry and be part of the Q&A every other Tuesday at 7.30pm on youtube.com forward slash Space Live. While you're there, catch up with season 1 and 2 of the Space Roundup and lots more. Like what you heard today? Why not support us by visiting our website, spacestore.co and check out how we are bringing space to everyone, everywhere, every day.